Hello, and welcome to PwC's Accounting and Reporting Podcast Series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's most important accounting issues. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in our national office, and I'll be your host today. In today's episode, we'll turn our attention to lessons learned from adoption of the new revenue standard. This should be of interest to private companies as they prepare for adoption of the standard at the end of the year but also provide some broader insights on best practices in adopting new accounting standards. Joining me today is CJ Finn, PwC's private company accounting change leader, who's been working with our private company engagement teams and clients as they adopt the new revenue standard. Why don't we kick things off by talking about the effective date as well as some transition elections that are available to private companies. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Heather. That's, that's great. Overall, for private companies, as we look at the revenue standard, it's effective for years beginning after December 15th, 2018, or for calendar year companies, it's 2019. But there's a little trick associated with that, because come 2019, that's effective for the annual periods. The quarterly periods, to the extent private companies have them, and they're, they're fewer, but there are some out there that also report on an interim basis, those are effective beginning for calendar year companies in 2020. So you can do an annual period basis in 2019 and then be on an interim basis beginning in 2020. If you do elect to do that, there is some things to think about because you do have an annual period that's a new basis um, in 2019. And then all of a sudden you come and do the interim periods in 2020. So you may have a different back and forth between the comparative periods for 2019 compared to 2020. That is why we do see most of our private companies electing to early adopt in 2019 for the quarters, but that option is available to you. Additionally, Heather, you mentioned a number of other practical expedients. There are some things in terms of relief from disclosures to just make the, the process a little bit easier for private companies, as well as some, some practical expedients that were for the public companies as well. So let me just make sure I get this straight on the effective date. So I can wait till the end of 2019 if I'm a calendar year-end company, but if I'm reporting quarterly periods, I may want to think about adopting early just to make things easier with adoption then as I go into next year. That's absolutely right. That's something to think about and consider. In large part, it probably depends on, given when we're talking about this, how far down the path are you? And so just take that into consideration as you go through the exercise. It's available to you, but if you'd have the capability of early adopting, you may want to consider it just to make sure that the quarters equal the annual period, and you can go through that in 2019. Right. Get it behind you, basically. That's right. That's right. um, And so then, CJ, why don't we move on to our next topic? And I think we've done a number of podcasts, talked in webcasts, you know, had different publications around public company experience with adopting the new standard, and in particular some of the SEC comment letters and other things. So as private companies are thinking about moving into the adoption, what are some of the lessons learned that they should be thinking about? Yeah, and, and for a number of the private companies out there, um, you've probably heard a lot about this because the standard first came out in 2014. And so this has been a long time coming. Having said that, because of the difference in the adoption, the public companies went first. They went first in 2018. And so let's learn from what they've experienced and the activities as we then look to adopt it for the private companies in 2019. If you look at it, the biggest thing that we've learned is don't underestimate the time and effort that it takes. There was a transition resource group 
there's a lot of material out there that relates to the activities and how to interpret the standard. So we're trying to make it easier for you. We're trying to go through the process and have the standard setters really weigh in to provide some interpretations. There was industry groups that got together to evaluate the activities. What does that mean? It means that there's a number of conclusions that have been reached associated with some complex areas. But having said that, there's a lot of information out there. And getting your arms around that complete population of information is a time-consuming exercise in and of itself. Then applying it to your own set of facts and circumstances to make sure that you're providing the best accounting as it relates to the adoption of this new standard. That is a cumbersome process as it relates to the accounting group in the organization. The second component, though, is it doesn't just stop with accounting. This standard is one of the more recent standards, the only ones besides this and leasing that really focus on a transactional basis. So every single contract that we enter into kind of comes up with this new language of the new standard. And it really is like learning a new language all over again. You may be able to talk the exact same way, but it, you're talking about it a little bit differently. Conclusions may be the same, but you're learning a new language and a new way of thinking about it. As you go through that, it makes it very cumbersome to get that out and spread that out to the rest of the organization. But since we're dealing with it at a transaction level, you really do need to make sure you've taken the time to train the rest of the organization. Why is that relevant? Well, think about it from a budgeting perspective. We're talking about the potential to change revenue, and so when you change revenue, that has implications associated with the rest of the income statement. So getting ahead of that and really understanding it from a budgeting perspective. Debt covenants end up coming into play. Compensation arrangements potentially some income tax consequences. If you think about anything that has relevance from a financial statement perspective within the organization, it doesn't stop just at the accounting side. It migrates throughout the rest of the organization for considerations. Getting them together and making sure they're all on the same page is really important. So you bring them in early, make sure they're aware of it, but it takes time to get everybody up and running associated with it. Well, yeah, and I guess even in this case, even the revenue contracts themselves, depending on how they're structured, you may want to look at that and, and think about that, and that's not something you, you can really do at the last minute. So um, there's very few, There is very few organizations that are able to unilaterally change their contract with a customer and feel good about it. Normally it takes two to, right. to engage associated with that. And we did see a number of companies, as they've gone through the process, decide that they really just want to change the, they don't like the accounting conclusion, so let's go change the contract. The sooner we can identify it, the better off we're all going to be in order to make sure that we give ourselves the full opportunity and the full runway to be able to get there. Makes sense. One other point you made that's interesting is on the language and learning a new language, and I think we're going to get into that on the next um, topic. But one of the interesting, you know, I mentioned lessons um, learned, and one of the interesting SEC comment letter comments we saw was in cases where the conclusion hadn't changed, but people were still using the old language in their footnote disclosures because, oh, you know, I didn't really have a big change in my accounting conclusion. And so, again, it's really kind of steeping yourself in some of these new words and languages that's going to be important um, as people adopt the standard. That's exactly right. It, takes, it just takes time to immerse yourself into that details. And the only way to really get familiar, familiarity with that new language is by immersing yourself into the activity Accounting will take the lead, 
but the rest of the organization needs to be smart enough to be able to follow. Right, to go along with it. So then with that, why don't we move then to our next topic, which really is around sort of the new language and um, the five-step model that's introduced, and then where should we be focusing in the five-step model? So maybe can you start by reminding us of the five-step model, and then where should we focus? Yeah, so the the five-step model, I... I really love to engage with because I, I also view it as kind of motherhood and apple pie. The five steps, when you think about it, are very succinct. They make sense. Everybody would look at it and go, well, yeah, how else would I recognize Of course, revenue? yeah. Right? So when you look at those five steps, it, it starts with the identification of a contract. And so defining what that contract is. And that really is sometimes a legal definition, but it's really understanding well, when have we entered into an arrangement with our customer? And each one of these five steps as we get into it is a building block upon itself. So if we get step one wrong, we don't really have any chance of getting the end, right? And yeah, each one goes, point, yes. goes through that <laughs> yeah, process. Yeah, you could get further and further off the path. <laughs> You're, yeah, it's, it's not going to be helpful if you miss the first step. Yeah. Um, the second step is identify performance obligations. And, and that one we're going to spend a fair bit of time on because that is where we do see a fair bit of... Uh, time invested from our from our companies. The st- third step, so after we figure out we got a contract with the customer, the second step is we're going to figure out what are we going to do for the customer. So that's what the performance obligation is. The third step is defining the transaction price, which I, I will put it as simply as, well, how much are we going to get from the customer? The fourth step is allocate transaction price. Allocate transaction price is really just the math. We know what we're going to do for the customer, and we know what we're going to receive. And so how do we allocate to the four or five things we've agreed to do? It's math, and sometimes it's basic algebra. Other times, I'd say, probably errors more towards calculus as you go through the process. And then the fifth step is recognize revenue. And that, we also do spend a little bit of time, especially in contract manufacturers, engineering space, Anywhere where you have some level of customized good or service that we're providing to a customer, we are taking a step back because there can be some changes there, but that's then the five steps. We don't just end there, though, because the new standard does end up impacting a little bit of the cost guidance as well. As we go and look at it, I would look at it in two fronts associated with this. The first one is identification of the performance obligations. Yeah, hopefully the contract you can find. So yeah, I was you've say got that, the contract. <laughs> Here's hoping. Um, when you look at the definition of the performance obligation, it is taking a step back. Under old guidance, we called it a deliverable. But as we look at this, it is getting down to a granular level of detail and really sitting with the sales department, others in the organization that are familiar with how you engage with the customer, and getting that complete list of, well, what are all those things that we do for the customer? Sometimes they're just inherent in what we do. Sometimes they're explicitly spelled out in the contract. But sitting down and making sure you get that complete list, again, because that's step two, it's important to make sure we get that one right because it's foundational. And we are noticing that some companies are seeing that that list is a little bit more complete and a little bit more fulsome than where they were have been at historically. Okay. And then so that, I think, naturally leads us into our next topic, which is estimating your transaction price. So what should companies be thinking about there? This one is actually, I think, helpful for many, but it does create its own. Anytime something's helpful, change is still change, and so we have to deal with it. The one area of focus that we have here is around variable consideration or some things that may even call it contingent consideration in an arrangement. 
I come from Michigan, and in the summertime, our roads are always under construction. But in that scenario, we have two main arteries into downtown Detroit, and it just so happened a couple years ago, both of them were under construction at the same point in time. Under old guidance, it was, well, you don't really need to deal with that, and you don't get to record any revenue associated with achieving that milestone and being, getting that contingent until you have achieved it and you have earned it and you are done with the project. The standard setters looked at that a little bit differently and said, well, as long as you feel good and it's probable that you will achieve that milestone, you should take that into consideration when determining transaction price. So you now get to potentially recognize revenue a little bit earlier depending on the facts and circumstances of the arrangement. Takes time to evaluate, takes time to consider. Anytime we have uncertainty around the transaction price, there's going to be more judgment applied. More judgment means we need to put a little bit more of a framework around it and spend our time really looking at the facts and circumstances. Recurring theme is, though, again, that takes time. Right. Well, and I think it goes back to something you said earlier as well, which is really involving the other parts of the business, because if we use your example if someone sitting in the controller's department is not necessarily going to know the likelihood that you're going to get done on time versus the guys um, and team that's out in the field and, and really working on that. That's exactly right. Having an appreciation for, in that case, the engineers, the sales team, everybody who's around and evaluating that contract is extra important now when you start thinking about these judgments. Before we go on from transaction price, let's briefly touch on point four, or step four, which is the allocation of transaction price. And you mentioned that that could be across four or five different things. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. And, and this goes back to the building block approach. So if you think about step two, and if we identify more performance obligations than we've had in the past, when we look to step three, we still have that probably that same cash consideration or in total. So then it turns into how do we allocate to more performance obligations that cash? If you look at that allocation, the default is to do it based on a relative standalone selling price. There is ways to potentially identify one discount to one item in the performance obligation, but let's just start with the default of relative standalone selling price. Going through that and acknowledging, okay, well, there's three or four different considerations now. I have new performance obligations. How do we go through and do that algebra? Take total cash and allocate it back. If you have more performance obligations, the allocation and the dollar amount you're recognizing in revenue is going to be different. If you have different cash that you're going to receive because of variable consideration, the answer in step four is going to be different. It takes time to consider. It takes time to evaluate as you go through it, but it is getting back the cash to the performance obligations so that you can then lead into step five and recognize the revenue. And I guess it goes back to your idea that you have to take the first step right in the right direction, then the second step, because if you start veering in the wrong direction, you're, you're really going to be off by the time you get to this point. And for the, this one's pretty sequential in nature. Yep. Yeah. Um, one other item before we go to our final topic of disclosure that you mentioned um, is the fact that the revenue standard actually includes cost guidance or some cost guidance. So can you briefly touch on that as well? Sure. And this, this has impacted a number of different in industries, significant considerations in aerospace and defense, in sometimes in utilities, in automotive. As you think about this, there's a lot of questions about, okay, I have some specific standards on cost guidance now. Those really didn't change. And the standard said, yep, go look to, to those cost guidance and you're outside of this. 
But if there is costs that are not in the scope of other items, then there is some considerations around, around those activities and saying, are those then subject to capitalization because they now better fit with the model of the revenue recognition standard, or should those be expensed? There's also guidance on cost to obtain a contract, and it's kind of a sleeper that's out there for, for some, and it relates to like sales commissions or if there's things that are done that are incremental, that you are paying it only because you have gotten this new contract in place. Then you need to think about capitalizing those and then spreading it over the contract. Different than just regular contract costs or proposal costs, we're going to incur that anyways. Um, and if whether or not we win or lose the, the contract with the customer. But if it is incremental, we win the contract and we have to go spend this money for a sales commission, then we need to think about whether or not we should be capitalizing those items. Two new twists, the standards called revenue recognition, but they came through and put some incremental cost guidance in there. So please consider it as you go through the analysis. Yep, makes sense. So with that then, why don't we move to our last topic? And this is, again, one that's got a lot of discussion as the public companies were going through their adoption, which are disclosure considerations. What would you highlight here as private companies are thinking about their own adoption? I think there's a couple of things. One is you are providing more disclosure relating to your revenue. And if you're providing those financial statements to customers, to others, there could be some sensitivity associated with what you're providing. So it, that should not just be an accounting exercise, but make sure that the CEO, CFO are engaged and understand what those disclosures are. The second item associated with that is since there are incremental disclosures, well, in order to gather that information, we need to make sure there's standardized templates, there's a process, there's education, and the IT infrastructure is in place to be able to gather it. And so making sure that that is evaluated. And on the disclosures, think about putting the shell together and then figure out how you're going to go get that information. I think the third consideration around this is a lot of the private companies that I, I work with, they go run and say, oh, well, the public companies adopted it last year, so I'm just going to go run and grab my comparable competitor public company and use that. Well, be careful with that because the public companies are required to do more incremental disclosures than the private companies are. That relates to some disaggregated revenue recognition and some of the roll-forward considerations just may not necessarily be as required for the private companies. So really take your time to understand what is required for you before you go run and grab your public company competitor and benchmark against them. Right. And again, I think this is another place, no boilerplate, really making sure that the disclosure you're including in your financial statements is the best depiction of the adoption of the standard for your company. That's right. This is at the heart of it. This is supposed to give investors a, more of an insight into, into the company and really have a lens through management's eyes of how they think about the revenue process with their customers. And so really being able to qualitative, qualitatively explain that and go through that is it is really important to make sure that you're meeting the merits of the standard. Good. Thank you, CJ. So I think that wraps up our five items, but I guess anything else you'd like to leave our audience with before we wrap up today? Yeah, revenue recognition is near and dear to my heart, but as you think about the implementation process, leasing isn't too far behind. Mm. And so as you as you go through this and recognize the burden that you have from a um, from an implementation perspective and everything we talked about related to the revenue recognition standard. Recognize that leasing is going to be there too. So as you get further along from a revenue perspective, maybe keep the band together as you then think about the, the leasing considerations because it is going to be a fair bit of change for, 
for the organization, fair bit of change for your accounting and financial reporting teams. Yes, I think that's excellent advice. And um, a- another place probably some of the private companies can learn from some public companies as they've gone through this. So CJ, again, really appreciate you being in the studio today. I think this will be very helpful for companies that are just gearing up to adopt the standard or even those who hopefully are quite far along their way. Appreciate it. Thanks, Heather. And to our listeners, I hope you leave this podcast with some new ideas and a better understanding of what this means for your company. For additional information, please check out our revenue page or this podcast page on cfodirect.com. Please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your content. I'm very interested in any thoughts, ideas, or suggestions you may have for the podcast. Please feel free to reach out to me at heather.horn at pwc.com. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.